Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I'm going to send that alone. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. Who pretty one look? Talk to the roof. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's got his tail and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount. Especially at first, an enormous amount of, of, of horror and guilt and remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. When Audrey Marie Hilly was arrested for murder and attempted murder in Alabama in 1979, everyone figured the story was pretty much over, but it had only just begun. This is a mysterious case of fake kidnappings, prison escapes, false identities, closet fires, secret injections, doubtful doctors and ivory teapots. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our brilliant and ever-loving patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our new fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our intoxicating and thought-provoking first season (laughs) and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As well as exclusive patron-only episodes where, in a surprising twist of fate nobody saw coming, we talk more about murder. (gasps) Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges. We're recording separately again as we've been put back in COVID lockdown for the next several weeks. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. 33-year-old John Homan wasn't expecting to find love again when he met 35-year-old Robbie Hanlon in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in February 1980. 
After his recent divorce, the quiet and reserved John had been focusing on his boat building business when Cupid's arrow struck him in the heart and the pants. Ouch. Hey, baby. John was drawn to the well-dressed and flirtatious Robbie and hung on every charming southern drawled word that fell from her pink lipstick-coated mouth. Robbie told him she was from Texas and her tragic past included the devastating loss of both her children in a car accident. John's alcoholic mother had died when he was young and he and Robbie connected over their shared burdens of grief. Within a few months of meeting, the two had moved in together. In October, Robbie and John left Florida and moved to New Hampshire to start a new life together. The couple rented a little house in the small town of Marlow. According to Wikipedia, Marlow bears many marks of glacial action and minerals are still found there. Glacial action sounds kind of saucy, but also kind of cold. Hey baby, is that a river of ice in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? Both. John quickly found a job working at a jewellery parts manufacturer called Findings Incorporated. He found Findings friendly and fitted right in. Robbie got herself a customer service job at a company in Keene called Central Screw Corporation. And you thought glacial action sounded saucy. (laughs) Well, glacial action sounds like a casual thing, but Central Screw Corporation sounds like they take their sexiness seriously. Hello? Oh, I'm here for the glacial action. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's an app you can get on your phone for that. I'm sorry, this is the Central Screw Corporation. You're looking for for the place next door. Robbie's southern charm and colourful personality saw her quickly become a popular member of staff. Her co-workers were fascinated by her stories of her fancy upbringing in a rich Texas family. She also dazzled them with tales of a huge inheritance she was going to receive. Despite her energetic demeanour, Robbie told co-workers she wasn't well. She said that she felt physically weak most of the time and suffered from frequent intense headaches. Robbie said she'd consulted many doctors who were unable to find the source of her illness. In May of 1981, John realised he liked it so much he put a ring on it and the two of them were married. Hooray. Okay, woo. Soon afterwards, Robbie broke some distressing news to her co-workers. She told them that she was dying of a rare blood disease that made her body create too many red blood cells. Robbie explained her frequent absences from work by saying that she was receiving treatment from a number of specialists in different states. She also started mentioning her identical twin sister, Terry Martin, a lot in conversation. Her co-workers were kept up to date about Terry's marital woes as Robbie spoke to her regularly on the phone at work. In mid-1982, Robbie told her co-workers that she'd be taking a trip to Texas in a final bid to cure her life-threatening illness. She said her twin sister Terry would be looking after her while she was there, as her husband John had to stay in New Hampshire for work. Robbie was gone for several months, in which time she stayed in close contact with John through regular phone calls. John was distraught when he received a call from Robbie's twin sister Terry on November 10th to tell him that she'd lost her battle with the rare blood disease. Robbie was dead. John was about to drop everything and fly to Texas, but Terry explained there was no need for him to organise his wife's burial because one of Robbie's last wishes was to donate her body to science. Terry told John her sister's other last wish was for Terry to travel to New Hampshire to meet him. When Terry arrived, John was gobsmacked. There are identical twins and then there are identical twins. So this wasn't a Danny DeVito, Arnold Schwarzenegger situation? 
No, no, no. It was more like when a soap opera actor plays their own twin on like Days of Our Lives or Passions, The Young and the Restless, All My Children, One Life to Live, pretty much all of them. Terry looked exactly like her dead sister, Robbie, down to the location of every wrinkle, scar and freckle. Sure, she had dyed blonde hair, was a bit thinner than Robbie and did her makeup differently, but the resemblance was ridiculously uncanny. John was not disappointed when she rocked up on his doorstep. The day after she arrived, Terry and John went to the office of the Keene Sentinel to place Robbie Homan's obituary in the newspaper. Now we're going to go ahead and assume John Homan may never have watched an episode of a soap opera in his life. For he did not doubt Robbie or her identical twin sister Terry's stories in the slightest. In fact, when he found himself falling for Terry, he thought it was destiny that had brought them together. The same can't be said of Robbie's co-workers at Central Screw Corporation. Terry insisted on visiting her deceased sister's former co-workers, which isn't usually a thing people do. No. She showed up at the office unannounced and told everyone there she was Terry Martin, Robbie's twin sister that they'd heard so much about. A couple of Robbie's former colleagues believed Terry's story. Yeah, but most of them spat out their lattes in disbelief. Oh, it can't be the same person. Robbie had brown hair and Terry has blonde hair. It's called hair dye, Kevin. It can't be the same person. Terry's a little thinner than Robbie. It's called a diet, Kevin. It can't be the same person. Robbie wore eyeshadow, but Terry just wears eyeliner. How did you even get this job, Kevin? Head of quality control. Fucked if I know. <laughs> I guess you just were, you, he was a middle-aged white guy standing in the right place at the right time. Yeah, that's right. After Terry left, Robbie's former co-workers huddled in the break room yelling to each other that the so-called Terry was actually totally Robbie and wondering why she'd come into the office in the first place. Did she think they were all as stupid as Kevin? <laughs> Terry moved in with John Homan and she assured him they needed to be together to get over Robbie's death and hey, he didn't fight her on it. She was identical to his ex-wife in all ways except she was thinner and blonder. What was there to complain about? <laughs> Terry got herself a secretary job at a book printing company in Battleboro, Vermont and settled into her new life. She and John started sleeping together. Ooh. And she just simply slotted into the space Robbie used to take up in his life. Perhaps his lack of suspicion was because it was at the top of his bucket list to bang twins. Perhaps. Mm. Meanwhile, at Central Screw, which is the name of my fourth album... <laughs> Oh, there's a lot going on there. There is. So meanwhile at Central Screw, Robbie's former co-workers continued to ponder the riddle of Terry. Several of them were our kind of people, fat, bold and handsome. What? No, amateur sleuths. <laughs> they got together and decided to investigate Robbie's obituary. The first myth they debunked was that Robbie's body had been left to the Medical Research Institute of Texas, as they found this organisation didn't even exist. Then they discovered that the Texas church that the obituary claimed Robbie had belonged to didn't exist either. A check of obituaries and coroner's records in the Dallas area around the time of her supposed death also yielded no results. The obituary was a crock of shit, Tara, made of 100% pure lies. She'd from a bull. Thank you, Russian Tara. <laughs> they knew something was very off with this whole story, but they didn't know why. Maybe Robbie slash Terry had multiple personality disorder. 
Maybe they were involved in some kind of social experiment. Maybe she was a lizard person. As we know, the lizard people like to clone and replace actual people, like Beyonce, for example. Maybe it was Robbie who killed JFK. Or maybe she found out birds aren't real, so the mechanical birds brainwashed her to do their bidding. Was she responsible for the black helicopters? Probably. The curious employees at Central Screw took their findings to manager Ron Oja, who confirmed their results and contacted the police who began looking into the puzzling case themselves. According to the TV show Snapped, investigators attempted to corroborate the details of Robbie Homan's obituary and came to the same conclusion as Robbie's co-workers. On January 4th, 1983, Detective Barry Hunter... Who was not a hunter of berries, that's his name. Well, you know, he can't always hunt berries when he's at work, but in his free time, he could do what he likes. So Detective Barry Hunter of the New Hampshire State Police began an investigation into the death of Robbie Homan. Unable to verify any of the information in the obituary, Detective Hunter came to believe that the alleged surviving sister of Robbie Homan, Terry Martin, might be a federal fugitive. Or brainwashed by the mechanical birds. I think it could be both. Detective Hunter told Snapped, One by one I was able to discount every single claim that was made within that obituary. Detective Hunter and FBI Special Agent David Steele approached Terry Martin on January 12th, 1983 and told her they were onto her. Ah, the jig's up, dollface. In what can only be described as a bizarre move, she then agreed to go with them to the police station. Former Vermont State Police Detective Mike LeClaire told Snapped, We took her to the police department and she says, My name is Audrey Marie Hilly. I'm from Anniston, Alabama and I'm wanted for some bad checks. So wait, she wasn't Terry or Robbie? Well, she was both of them, but they were fake identities. So Kevin was wrong? Kevin's always wrong. Nothing to do with robot birds? Nah, turns out birds are real. Or maybe that's what the mechanical birds want you to think. Nah, you got me. After running her name through an FBI database, authorities realised they were dealing with more than just a person who'd passed some bad checks and liked pretending to be her own twin sister. They were actually dealing with a murderer. Audrey Marie Hilly was promptly extradited back to Alabama. So who the hell is Audrey Marie Hilly? And who did she kill? And is John still in denial? All will be revealed. When? Now! Audrey Marie Fraser was born to Huey and Lucille Fraser on June 4th, 1933 in Blue Mountain, Alabama and grew up in Anniston. That's where Jennifer Aniston's from. Yep. Probably. She dropped the Audrey and had gone by the name of Marie since she was little. Well, Audrey is a cat's name. That was her reasoning, I believe. Yeah. According to CrimeLibrary.com, Huey and Lucille Fraser both worked long hours in the cotton industry to try and make a living during the Depression era in Alabama. Relatives looked after Marie while their parents toiled away to put food on the table. Oh, nobody wants to eat cotton sandwiches every day. I'd eat cotton pie every day. Oh, you dirty bastard. Yeah. Due to the lack of time they were able to spend with their daughter, they tended to spoil her when they did see her. She was an undisciplined child, prone to tantrums if she didn't get her way. Ah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it does to me too. Her parents had big plans for Marie. They didn't want her leading a rough life in the cotton trade and instead hoped she'd get an education and become a secretary. It sounds a little absurd to think of this as a lofty goal, but for them, it was. Local girls usually only received a primary school education before going to work in the cotton mills. 
At Quintard Junior High School, Marie was a popular and dedicated student. She joined the student council and did well in her studies. In the seventh grade, she received the earth-shattering honour of being voted the prettiest girl in school. I won that once. No, you didn't. You're right. I won it twice. (laughs) At Anniston High School, Marie continued to focus on her studies and joined the Future Teachers of America and the Commercial Club, a group for girls who aspire to achieve secretarial careers. She also continued to focus on her prettiness and ensured she was well-dressed and fully coiffed at all times. Although many boys liked her, Marie's heart belonged to a handsome young fellow student named Frank Hilly. He was from an Aniston family whose inhabitants worked in the area's other big industry, pipe-making. Pipe-making? Yes, Tara, pipe-making. Frank and his two sisters, Freda and Jewel, grew up in a loving household despite not having much material wealth. Ah, oh, not pipe souffle for dinner again. Ah, oh, not pipe pie. You love pipe pie. You're the <laughs> pipe pieer of Brunswick. Frank and Marie met when she was 12 and he was a junior in high school. The fact their parents didn't approve of their relationship did nothing to cool either of their romantic jets. Frank is said to have treated young Marie like a queen and did all he could to keep her happy and prevent her eye from wandering. It feels weird, doesn't it, trying to imagine like a 12-year-old's eye wandering? <laughs> it's kind of like, what? Yeah, you can, I'll promise you all the bagpipes you could eat. After graduating from high school, Frank made like the village people's song and joined the Navy. He hated to be separated from his sweetheart and married her while he was on leave in May 1951. Marie stayed in Anniston and finished high school. After graduating, she joined her new husband in Long Beach. In 1952, when he was reassigned to Boston, Marie went with him. After Frank's tour of duty ended, they were thrilled to discover Marie was pregnant from their sex. (laughs) They moved back to Anniston, Alabama and bought a modest house to start their family in. Frank got himself a job in the shipping department of Standard Foundry while Marie fulfilled her parents' lofty dream and obtained work as a secretary. On November 11th, 1952, their first child, Mike Healy, was born. It wasn't until he left the Navy that Frank discovered Marie had a dark, diabolical secret. She was a shopaholic. Former FBI Special Agent David Steele told Snapped, she was a lady that liked to spend a lot of money. She was very meticulous in her dress. Frank wasn't happy with how Marie could impersonate a magician by quickly making their earnings disappear. He feigned enthusiasm for the fancy outfits and home furnishings she kept acquiring, but tensions were brewing. Oh, Frankie, look at this lovely luxury new ivory teapot I just bought. What was wrong with our old teapot? It was mother of pearl, so last season. But we don't even drink tea. Frank and Marie argued over her exorbitant spending habits and whether or not a teapot could be considered last season. Frank hated conflict and would often bow to his wife's wishes to avoid more fighting. He figured the old saying, happy wife, happy life was correct, but he was wrong. Wronger than a chicken wearing skinny jeans? Oh, if that's wrong, I don't want to be right. In 1960, Frank and Marie welcomed their daughter Carol into the world. Frank had been promoted to foreman of the shipping department at Standard Foundry and Marie went back to work as an executive secretary while Frank's mother Carrie looked after the kids. So, things were looking good. 
Oh, you'd think so, maybe from the outside. But as the family's income had increased, so had Marie's spending. Now they had another mouth to feed, Frank grew increasingly concerned. So yeah, as I said, from the outside, their union appeared to be a good one. Frank, being a sociable fellow, was a member of the Veterans of Foreign Wars and the Elks Club and had a lot of friends in the area. Did he get to wear a sweet fez? Well, the dad in Happy Days wore a leopard print fez when he went to his Elks Club meeting. Do you think it's safe to assume they all do? I don't want to live in a world where it isn't. Marie was an active member of the church and happily volunteered at her children's schools when called on to do so. The Hillies' children, Mike and Carol, had a much more financially comfortable childhood than their parents did. In material terms, they wanted for nothing. But Marie had never been much of a fan of other women, viewing them as competition for men's attention. Unfortunately, she also looked at her own daughter, Carol, in this fashion. Mm. Marie made no secret of the fact that Mike was her favourite child. As far as she was concerned, Carol could never do anything right. Marie wanted her daughter to be a sweet, pretty, doe-eyed, girly girl, but Carol was a tomboy who loved sports and climbing trees. She found the pretty dresses her mother made her wear impractical and would be chastised harshly if she accidentally tore or stained one of them. Carol told Snapped, I couldn't please her no matter what I did. She didn't like what I wore. She didn't like how I thought. She didn't like who I hung out with. Mike, on the other hand, could get away with anything and was always the apple of his mother's eye. Frank wasn't blind to his wife's favouritism and went out of his way to tip the scales of parental love back into balance for Carol. He spent as much time with his daughter as he could and took her on a lot of daddy-daughter dates where they'd go to a ball game or get ice cream together. Their closeness pissed Marie off and made her jealous and even more harsh on Carol. According to Snapped, Marie got back at Frank by taunting him with love letters she said she received from local men. She probably wrote them herself. Yeah, she more than likely did. Dear me, I am so beautiful and special. (laughs) I love me so much. (laughs) I fantasise about making sweet love to me all the time. Hey, baby. I want me to run away with me and start a new life together. Well, like, that's kind of what she did with the whole fake twin thing. Apparently she had affairs with some of her bosses too. Did she though? Or did she just dress up in a men's suit and go fuck herself? Oh, that's where that expression comes from. Yeah. (laughs) To try to keep her spending habits on the DL from her husband, Marie rented a clandestine post office box and began having bills sent there so Frank wouldn't know how much she was spending on special, special things for herself. She also started taking out sneaky loans so she could buy even more fancy things and stuff. When she didn't pay off the loans, which were in both the Hillier's names, word got back to Frank and he was super unimpressed. Did she have hundreds of shoes like Imelda Marcos? I don't know, probably. I have two. Two pairs of shoes? Well, that's excessive. No, two. A pair. It's more than you deserve. Well... We'll be back with the rest of The Sickness Follows after this. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, Barney, what time is it? It's True Crime Nerd time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, omelette, <laughs> chicken wearing skinny jeans, song, <laughs> or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Pixie Wolf, and Pixie tells us about Bailey Sarah Ann. It's essentially my surname without the B. Yeah, it's missing the B. What do you think the B stands for in your name? Uh, bloody fucking awesome. What about you? What do you think it stands for? Huh? Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never say oh that. Oh, my God. Captain Obvious. Go to the back of the queue. Uh, no, it stands for Barney. Ah, uh, well, that makes more sense. That Bailey chick's lucky. She gets her B from someone else. And Pixie writes, Hi Tara and Barney, Bloody Murder is not only my favourite podcast, but also what helps me sleep at night. Because it's boring. <laughs> yeah, it's boring as fuck. <laughs> I have a really fun person that you should feature on True Crime Nerd Time. Their name is Bailey Sarian, and they post weekly tales of murder, mystery and makeup, which come out on Monday. True crime stories told by a fantastic makeup artist while they get ready. And that's on YouTube, I think. Yes. Bailey is quite funny and incredibly down to earth. Bailey puts an incredible amount of effort into learning the childhood, histories and lives involved in the case we know well, and even more in cases we don't know so well. All while doing this, Bailey is turning her face into a work of art, with many of Bailey's looks even relating to the story. Ooh. Bailey Sarian is incredibly talented and deserves all the love she gets. Also, if you talk about my true crime nerd time, would you please give a shout out to my family who are massive fans and often come to meet and greets? I know them. Hi, Libby, Steve and Angel and Thorin the cat, because let's be honest, he's listening in for inspiration. Go for the eyes, Thorin. Go for the eyes. Um, <laughs> Go for the eyes. That's good advice. <laughs> hi, uh, hi, Libby, Angel and Steve. Um, some, some of our listeners who follow us on social media might already know Steve as Nipple Man. Yeah, that's right. We've seen um, a lot of Steve. Yes, a well, lot. They're, they're, more they're... of him than more other than other <laughs> listeners. Anyway, we 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 love all of you. You're yeah, you go, guys. Folks. We look forward to seeing you again if we're ever ungrounded. Well, thanks, Pixie. That's Bailey Sarian. The details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website bloodymurderpodcast.com for instructions on how to contribute. Did you know that a rugby league player was the victim of a sensational attempted murder in 1953? That an Australian serviceman saved future President John F. Kennedy during World War II? Or that Sydney was plagued by a wave of bloody murders the very same year that the Sydney Harbour Bridge opened? 
How about Melbourne being plunged into chaos during a three-day riot in 1923? Or one of the world's first mass shootings happening in that city just a few months later? I'm Michael Adams, and in my podcast, Forgotten Australia, we take a deep dive into stories like this that somehow slipped through the cracks and got left out of the history books. There are dozens of episodes already available, bringing you cops and crooks, martyrs and movie stars, saintly nurses, savage serial killers, and even Australia's forgotten supermodel. So if you're into true crime, dark histories, unsolved mysteries and more, subscribe to Forgotten Australia. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. So it's mid-July, huh? Yep. Hmm. Hmm. Is everything going on in the world at the moment and the way this year is panning out, interfering with your ability to be happy? Is something stopping you from achieving your goals? Have you had about as much as you can take and you're not sure what to do about it? Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff you have to deal with even harder. We're both big believers in therapy and there's no time better than now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. And you can communicate with your counsellor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without having to sit in a germy waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You could be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as anxiety, depression, trauma, anger and stress. Anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional and very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. And as a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states of the USA. Get matched with a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs. If you don't believe us, just check out all the positive testimonials on their website. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the conclusion of The Sickness Follows. In early 1975, Frank Healy was struck down by a mysterious illness. He tried to grit his teeth and keep going in spite of it, but instead of it going away, it proceeded to get worse. According to court documents, Frank consulted Dr. Earl Jones on May 19, 1975, complaining of nausea and tenderness in his stomach. Dr. Jones diagnosed his condition as a viral stomach ache. On May 23, when the condition persisted, he was admitted to hospital. Based on laboratory studies indicating acute liver malfunction, Dr. Jones re-diagnosed Frank's condition as infectious hepatitis. 45-year-old Frank Hilly died in the early morning hours of May 25, 1975, and because of the suddenness of his death, Dr. Jones requested that Marie allow him to perform an autopsy. The autopsy revealed hepatitis, swelling of the kidneys and lungs, bilateral pneumonia and an inflammation of the stomach. Frank's cause of death was determined to be infectious hepatitis. His daughter Carol told Snapped, 
His face was real ashy-coloured, and his eyes were like really blood-red. They took him to the hospital, and within a day or two, he was dead. Frank maintained a life insurance policy with Provident Life and Accident Insurance, which Marie was a beneficiary of. She collected $31,000 from it, which is the equivalent of over $150,000 now. Carol told the Sentinel source that after her father died, any sense of normalcy in her family life died with him. Of Marie, Carol told them, she lied about everything, even just little stuff that didn't matter at all. Bananas are blue, apples are cubular, and Millie Vanilli did some great music. They really didn't. No. Carol also said that on more than one occasion, she answered the phone to hear her mother trying badly to disguise her voice, telling her she was going to kill herself. Why would she do that? To freak out her teenage daughter who was mourning the passing of her father, I guess. Oh, just normal mum stuff. When Carol's brother Mike left home and moved to Florida, Marie told Carol she needed to fly to scene because he'd been in a terrible car accident. Carol said she didn't believe it for a second, and later that night her mother came home and never mentioned it again. But why? Because it didn't happen. She was just fucking with Carol again. Carol said it was so hard to keep track of her lies, I didn't believe anything that came out of her mouth. It was a waste of time to try and get her to tell the truth. Marie and Carol moved in with Frank's mother, Carrie Hilly. That's when strange and spooky shit started to go down. Fires were started in closets, the phone lines were cut and strange calls were received. Not only that, but Carrie became ill and experienced regular bouts of nausea and vomiting. Marie started a saucy affair with her boss, Harold Dillard, who ran a construction company. But she also found time to knock boots with an old school friend named Kelvin Robertson. Part of her sexy time pillow talk with Kelvin was to lie to him about having cancer. Hey, baby. She told him she didn't have enough money to pay for treatments needed to irradiate her imaginary tumour. This inspired Kelvin to send her money which she promptly spent on fancy clothes and ivory teapots. In April 1979, Marie's least favourite child, 19-year-old Carol, also fell victim to a mystery illness. While Marie was helping her to get ready for the prom and no doubt criticising her harshly the whole time, Look at those dirty pillows! Carol was overcome with nausea. I think I will be too. (laughs) Yeah, I hope she threw up on Marie. I hope it was chunky. In the next several days, Carol's condition deteriorated so quickly she lost the ability to walk and had to be admitted to hospital. Over the next few months, a pattern emerged. Tartan, gingham, polka dot. Not that kind of pattern. Carol would become hideously ill, get admitted to hospital, get better, go home and get terribly ill again. Hmm, how mysterious. In April 1979, Marie gave Carol an injection in her hip, which she claimed would alleviate her nausea. After this injection, Carol began experiencing numbness in her fingers and weakness in her legs and even more nausea than before. On August 22, 1979, Carol was admitted to the Anniston Hospital. Dr Warren Sarrell, unable to diagnose her illness, sent Carol to see a psychiatrist for a psychiatric evaluation because he thought her symptoms might be psychosomatic. The same exact thing happened to Peggy Carr, who was poisoned to death by her neighbour, which we covered in episode 143, The Mensa Murder Mystery. So apparently this sort of thing happens a lot to women, but not often to men. 
According to a BBC article, women are more likely to receive anti-anxiety medication than men when they come into a hospital with pain and they're more often written off as psychiatric patients as opposed to patients who are actually suffering with some, some real debilitating illness. Kristen Veasley, co-founder and director at the Chronic Pain Research Alliance, told the BBC, women have been more often referred to psychologists or psychiatrists, whereas men are given tests to rule out actual organic conditions. Yeah, it's like the old uh, hysteria. And doesn't hysterectomy mean get rid of the crazy? Ugh, I just hate all of that. Mm, me too. While at Caraway Methodist Hospital, Marie gave Carol two more injections, telling her that they'd help strengthen her weak legs. She told Carol to keep the injections a secret because she'd got them from a friend who was a nurse and she didn't want her to get fired. On September 18, 1979, Dr Elmore told Marie that Carol was suffering from malnutrition and vitamin deficiencies and that lead or other metal poisonings might be the cause of her illness. Alarmed at hearing someone say the word poison... Marie insisted on having Carol discharged, even though doctors told her that she needed to stay in hospital as her condition had deteriorated since she was admitted. When Frank had been suffering from his mystery illness, Marie had given him injections that she claimed would help as well, but they certainly didn't. The Hilly family were aghast when they found out that she was doing the same thing to Carol. When Carol told her brother Mike about the injections, he contacted the hospital, who informed him that Marie had never been authorised to give Carol any injections. Suspicious of his father's death and fearing for his sister's life, Mike called the police. On September 19th, Carol was admitted to the University of Alabama Hospital in Birmingham. Also, just by coincidence, on that date, Marie was arrested for passing bad checks. Dr. Brian Thompson, on initial examination, discovered that Carol's hands were numb, her feet were numb, she had nerve palsy causing foot drop, and she'd lost most of her deep tendon flexes. But she has a vagina, so it must be all in her head. Yeah, lady pain's a myth. Only man pain is real. Ultimately, he discovered that Aldridge Mee's lines were present in Carol's toenails and fingernails, and he recognised this as a symptom of arsenic poisoning. <gasps> Finally! He conducted tests on samples of Carol's hair and discovered that it had about 50 times the normal level of arsenic. Former FBI agent Wayne Manis told Snapped, They found such significant levels in Carol's blood that there was no question she'd been poisoned. There's no other way you could get that much arsenic into your system. Detectives investigating the case learnt that Marie had recently taken out a $25,000 life insurance policy on Carol, which, of course, designated her as the beneficiary. The policy also had an additional $25,000 accidental death coverage. Parents very rarely take out an insurance policy on their children. We all expect our children to outlive us, Agent Manus said. Fuck me, that Marie really puts the arse in arsenic. <laughs> She really does. Uh, I reckon she puts the cunt in cyanide too. On October 9th, 1979, Marie, who was still being held in the Anniston City Jail on bad check charges, was arrested for the attempted murder by poisoning of Carol Hilly. A medicine vial in her purse, which was already in the possession of the police, was removed for testing and revealed the presence of arsenic. Two weeks after Marie's arrest, on what would have probably been a rainy morning, her former husband Frank's body was exhumed for testing. 
The Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences found abnormally high levels of arsenic, ranging from 10 times the normal level in hair samples to 100 times the normal level in toenail samples. As a result of these tests, doctors concluded that the cause of Frank Hilly's death was acute arsenic poisoning and noted that he'd been given arsenic for months prior to his death. Frank's sister Frida was sure Marie had killed her brother. She went to the house Marie had shared with her mother and looked for evidence. She found a medicine vial in an open makeup case in the back room where Marie had kept her belongings. Analysis of the contents of this bottle revealed the presence of arsenic. During their investigation, the police came to believe Marie had poisoned a lot of other people over the years. Former FBI agent Manus told Snapped, she poisoned relatives, neighbours, business associates. Where Marie was, the sickness followed. She even poisoned her own mother and her mother-in-law. Investigators found that both Marie's mother and her mother-in-law had significant traces of arsenic in their system when they died. Their official causes of death were cancer, but all the arsenic probably didn't help. Yeah, arsenic. Not really recognised as a cure for cancer, is it? In October of 1979, Audrey Marie Healy was indicted for the attempted murder of her daughter, Carol. And in January of 1980, she was indicted for the murder of her husband, Frank. These two indictments were consolidated for trial. Two months after she was arrested, Marie made bail. Her defence attorney had organised a room for her at a hotel under the name of Emily Stevens. She made arrangements to meet with her attorney on November 18, 1979. When he arrived, she was in the wind. A note left in her hotel room said Marie had been kidnapped and told her attorney not to try and find her. Yeah, see, that's not usually how kidnappings go. There's a ransom note some people have, you know? Yeah, well, this wasn't a usual kidnapping. No, it wasn't a kidnapping at all. No. Police compared the handwriting on the note to samples of Marie's handwriting, and guess what? They matched. Police began searching for escaped murderer Marie Hilly. On November 19th, someone broke into Marie's aunt's house. They stole a car, some women's clothing, and an overnight bag. Investigators found a note left in the house that read, Do not call police. We will burn you out if you do. We found what we wanted and will not bother you again. Did Marie write it herself? It's very polite. Yes, of course she did. Yeah. (laughs) Marie Hilly was on the lam and managed to avoid capture for the next three years until January 1983 when police in Keene, New Hampshire began investigating a possible case of identity fraud. In that time, she had met and married John Homan as Robbie, then faked her death and come back as her own twin sister, Terry. God, you couldn't make this shit up, could you? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you could just watch Days of Our Lives and maybe get it from there. John swore to God he had no idea Robbie and Terry were the same person. Well, yeah, Robbie had dark hair and Terry had blonde hair. Well, Terry was a bit thinner than Robbie. How can it be? John told the press, if I were taken to court today, I would swear they were two different people. This has not changed my feelings about her at all. I don't believe after living with that woman that there is a mean bone in her body. Despite the huge amounts of evidence, John refused to believe that Marie had murdered her husband and attempted to murder her own daughter. He up and moved to Aniston to be close to her and support her through the trial. Well, in John's defence, he probably thought she was triplets by now. (laughs) You know how we talked about that weird shit that happened to Carol and Marie when they moved in with their mother-in-law, Carrie? Oh, yeah, the the fires that started in closets and the cut phone lines and, like, more weird phone calls, possibly a poltergeist? Well, you'd expect that, wouldn't you? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> but Marie would call the police every time one of these um, incidents occurred. She would be a lovely hostess when the officers arrived and insist on serving them coffee and cakes. Yum. No, not yum. In hindsight, it turned out a lot of the officers who enjoyed Marie's hospitality became very ill shortly afterwards. Yeah, she poisoned the cops. That's bold. That's ballsy. Yeah. Check out the balls on Marie. Yeah, check out the big bouncing fuck-off balls on Marie. There also used to be a family that lived next door to the Hillies for years and their kids used to play together. The children were sick all the time, but doctors could never find out why. Yeah, she poisoned them too. Well, it seems likely, as after the family moved to a different area, the children quickly recovered. While Marie awaited trial at the Calhoun County Jail, she revealed to her cellmate Priscilla Lang that she had poisoned Frank slowly by placing a little arsenic at a time in his food. Ugh, it's such a cliché. That's like how everyone does it. So what was in the injections then? Even more arsenic. Marie's trial received extensive coverage in the media, none of which her doting supporter John believed. The evidence was so substantial that she was convicted in June 1983 and given a life sentence for Frank's murder and 20 years for attempting to kill Carol. Over the next few years, Marie was a model poisoner. I mean prisoner. I mean poisoner. I mean both of them. A poisoner prisoner. Mm. She worked hard to gain the prison staff's trust and appeared polite and well-behaved. In late February 1987, her good girl act paid off and she was given a three-day pass. They gave a convicted murderer three days leave from prison? Well, if you can't trust a convicted murderer, who can you trust? That's not a saying. She stayed with the ever-faithful John, who possibly also had make sweet love to a convicted killer written on his bucket list. The day she was supposed to go back to jail, she told John that she was going to visit her mother's grave, but instead she scampered off and went on the lamb again. Did she leave a note saying she was kidnapped? Nah, like a mother of pearl teapot, that is so last season. She did leave a note for John, just not a kidnap note. It said, I hope you'll be able to forgive me. I'm getting ready to leave. It'll be best for everybody. We'll be together again. Please give me an hour to get out of town. The note went on to say that she was meeting a dude named Walter who would help her fly to Canada and then she'd get in touch with John. The weather was particularly freezing, wet and horrible in the days after her escape. Not that the police expected her to stay in the area for long. They figured the Canada plan was a ruse, but she'd definitely be attempting to flee the state and possibly the country. What she did instead is truly baffling. Marie was found a few days later when a woman named Sue Craft looked out of her window and saw the creepiest fuck sight of Marie slowly crawling along the ground of her rural property towards Sue's front porch. Sue told AP News, Oh, I really didn't like looking at her. She was scary. There were spots of mud on her face. Her bangs were stuck to her forehead. She had long fingernails, like she'd never wrung out a mop. She had thin hands and the little finger on her right hand wouldn't straighten out. It was bent double. She was so dirty. She talked like her tongue was thick. 53-year-old Marie Hilly was conscious when the ambulance arrived, but lost consciousness at the scene. Marie suffered a heart attack when she arrived at the hospital. Doctors tried to raise her body temperature and revive her, but were unable to do so. 
The Calhoun County coroner listed hypothermia as the official cause of death of Audrey Marie Hilly. Marie, Robbie, Terry, all of the people that she said. Uh, she was actually dead for realsies. The coroner said she'd been crawling around in the woods, drenched by four days of rain and numb from the freezing temperatures. The porch where Marie was found was less than a mile from her Blue Mountain birthplace, so it seems like she was trying to crawl through the like freezing cold woods back to where she was born. Bizarre. Yeah, she was trying to crawl home, E.T. crawl home. Nobody in their wildest imagination thought it would end like this, said Sheriff Roy Schneed. That truly is baffling. She's this escape artist who is good at assuming false identities, but instead she goes and crawls around in the freezing cold woods. Yeah, look, maybe she had other plans and they fell through. Who knows? Like, even if she didn't die, we'd never know because you can't get a straight answer out of her. In a 2012 interview, Marie's daughter Carol told the Sentinel source that she never bothered trying to get the truth out of her mother because there was no point trying to make her tell them the truth. Despite what Marie had done to her and her brother Mike, they still visited her often in prison. When Mother's Day came along, Carol said she remembered shopping for a card with her brother when they realised none of them quite... (laughs) When they realised none of them quite summed up their situation. Carol said... I was looking at all the cards and they would say things like, to the best mother, and I thought, nope, that doesn't work. How about, tried to kill me, failed, rot in hell. Yeah, that kind of works. Carol told the Sentinel source she has better things to think about now and can't imagine why anyone would care about her mother's story all these years later. Because it's batshit crazy. (laughs) Carol, who worked for the Anderson Army Depot for nearly 30 years before retiring, said that if someone wanted to ask her about her family, she'd much rather talk about her brother, his wife, kids and grandkids than about her mother. Carol reflected, I sometimes think how my mother cheated my father out of his grandchildren. I guess she cheated herself out of them too. Oh, what a story. Isn't it wild? You know what really perplexes me, though, Tara, is... Is it, is it why did she come back as her twin sister, Terry, and go to the old workplace? Because that's yeah. what perplexes me. She didn't need to kill herself. Or maybe she told so many lies about her being sick that she thought that she had to kill off Robbie. Oh, right. I don't think so because, you know, people love a happy ending. Um, Maybe she was preparing a new identity or maybe she was just such an arrogant narcissist that she wanted to kind of go back to her old work and pull the wool over her co-worker's eyes or something. Yeah. Like, or maybe she was just someone who, I mean, obviously she can help it because she didn't just, she wasn't crazy as such. She was in control of when she told these lies, but it also seems almost like she, you know, couldn't help but lie all the time. It was like something that she felt very compelled to do. Yeah. I also think it's ironic that um, she ended up having all that numbness from the hypothermia because that's one of the symptoms of the arsenic poisoning. Ah, yeah. yeah. I have but one question. Yes. What is Aussie as? Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, that would be nice. I turned to the trusty NT News website for today's Aussie As to find a crocodile story for Rebecca, a listener who made the mistake of telling us that she hates crocodiles. Yeah, we're not mean. We're just trying to help her get over her fears. 
Yeah, I mean, well, uh, okay. <laughs> is that what we're doing? Well, that makes me feel better about my cunty motivations for picking this story. <laughs> it is very Aussie as to fuck with people you like. No, it isn't, you ludicrous, hideous ass top hat. Ass top hat, that's cruel. You know how much I hate top hats. I didn't mean it. I was just proving your point. I hate you. Good. According to their website, the Northern Territory's Corroboree Park Tavern caters to people from all walks of life who like to step back from the hustle and bustle of larger parks and cityscapes. Situated on expansive bushland about an hour out of Darwin, the tavern is the ideal place to set up camp or escape for a few days. They offer accommodation and camping facilities, a fully licensed tavern and a 4.4 metre or 14 and a half foot saltwater crocodile named Brutus. Whoa. Hey, does Brutus wander around the park in a bow tie offering customers beer and sausages on a fancy tray? They wish. No, he lives in a fenced in area in the park. Ah, pity. Yeah. When Cyclone Monica hit the area back in 2016, a big fuck-off tree fell across the fence and into Brutus's pen. Fearing the fence might break and the huge crocodile might escape and wreak havoc on nearby campers and Rebecca, a bloke named Fred Buckland was sent to remove the tree. Tavern owner Peter Shappert told the NT News that Freddie didn't want to go into Brutus's pen for some reason. Coward. Oh, really? So you'd go into the pen, would you? I would, Tara. Wearing nothing but jorts and a denim bow tie. Brutus wouldn't fuck with me. He'd be too scared. <laughs> yeah, sure. If by too scared you mean too busy laughing. I don't believe crocodiles can laugh. Ah, oh, jump in Brutus's pen wearing jorts, a bow tie and a denim top hat and we'll sure as hell find out. So Freddie didn't want to go into Brutus's pen. Instead, he stood on a ladder and stretched out over the fence into it to cut up the tree with a chainsaw so it could be removed. Petey said, I think Brutus was a bit upset with all the noise and in two seconds he's leapt 20 feet off the water, scrambled up the tree, snatching the chainsaw out of his hand. Whoa. So yeah, the crocodile just went boom, like 20 feet in the air, used the tree to get himself up a bit more, grabbed the chainsaw that was like actually in action and in its big gob and just like boom, went back into his little watery fucking horrifying. <laughs> How you going, Rebecca? Come on, you can do this. <laughs> you can get through it, Rebecca. And then come back down on the ground. Anyway, no. Petey went on to say, oh, Freddie was really lucky. Could have been him dragged back into the pond and him eating for breakfast. So, yeah, crocodiles can fly 20 feet into the air. That's a thing you know now. You're welcome. So that brings us to the end of the episode. And probably the end, the end of Rebecca. Oh, no. Nah. She loves it. She just said she didn't like it so that, so that we'd talk more about it because she secretly loves it. Before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time out of their busy lives to write us some good reviews. So thank you to... Sammy's Nuts from the United States. That's either from Sammy or Sammy's Nuts. I think it's from both of them. I think the nuts wrote it. <laughs> uh, Danny DS from the United States. Uh, we also had a lovely review from Stargazer Peter from Australia. Yeah, and uh, they write about the Book of Sam. They say, hey, guys, fantastic podcast. I'm an avid listener but was stunned to hear a story I was personally familiar with. I knew Sam, not his real name. He and his two younger brothers were placed in a residential unit I ran in Preston. Sam was 11 and turned 
12 whilst in our care. Sam was a damaged young man, but extremely likeable. He also sang like an angel. Oh, wow. For his 12th birthday, his dad gave him a Bowie knife. I hear what you're saying. What the fuck? Yeah, I did too. (laughs) Keep the great podcast coming. Thank you. Thanks, Stargazer Peter. That's interesting. Uh, We'd also like to thank Dugong Bob from Australia. He's a manatee. Mm. Maybe. Akasha Sark Titchener from the USA. Stylus 2990714. MDD92343314. Oh, our robot overlords are writing us reviews. Thank you. Also, Sheila Blige. And we'd like to thank Lorraine and our Facebook moderating team. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. You know who else is awesome? Yes. Our patrons, we love them. We love them so much, we've been holding monthly giveaways. For our July prize, we're giving away a three-pack of Bloody Murder socks. There's some keep kicking against the pricks ones you can put on your feet to kick pricks in. That's right. And hey, baby. Hey, baby. Put them on your walking hands. You can. For a chance to win, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program. So thank you to... Ayat Martin. Kelly Bosworth. And Bob Secondi. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And who's buying the drinks this week? Sophia Weaver. Thanks very much. Thank you. Very kind. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, our Facebook page, or our IMDb listing. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and Barney is handsome would still count. (laughs) Oh, I get those removed because they're incorrect. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us grow our audience and spread the word that mechanical birds aren't real. They could be. You can follow us through our Facebook page or join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram, we're bloody underscore murder underscore podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and links to our threadless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. That's pretty much my favourite conspiracy theory that birds aren't real. Yeah, it's a pretty good one, I've yeah. got to say. I mean, and they're, they're doing surveillance for the government or something. <laughs> yeah, of course they are, because the government's got that kind of money to make that many birds that aren't real. I, t- I was telling my son Dexter about the birds aren't real theory, and he said, what about the bones? And I said, fake. And he went, yeah. really? And I went, no, probably not. I think birds are real. What do you think? And he reckons birds are real. Okay. Well, he's a very smart boy. He is. Takes after his mother. What? (laughs) (laughs) So I found a really fun new thing to do with my dog, Poppy. Um, What we do is uh, we play Real Housewives of Beverly Hills together. Um, So we, we put on, like, our diamonds and some fake eyelashes and some really like high expensive fancy lady shoes like Louboutins or something. Um, and then we drink rosé and we pretend we're in a fancy restaurant together. And then we just fight each other viciously about bullshit, about nothing, you know. Wow. And then sometimes she'll throw wine at me, and sometimes I'll throw wine at her. And yeah, basically we just um, we just argue about nothing. It's really fun. I mean, I can't say the dog understands it, but she's really into it because sometimes there's a cheese plate. 
I'd, I'd, I'd like to film that. <laughs> so, yeah, no, lockdown's not getting to me at all. Like, I found heaps of ways to amuse myself. <laughs> Mostly I just do that. I had this dream the other night that's inspired me to write a children's story. Oh, is it about bums? Well, there are some bums in it, but no, I that's not it. what it's called. It's, uh-huh. called. it's called Laszlo the Pirate Cat. Oh. And I had this dream that Laszlo and I were on a pirate ship, right? And yep. Leslie wore a little hat, like a pirate hat. Cool. Right? And mm. uh, and it was basically stories about him. He, you know, he would uh, he would be on the deck and someone would throw him a fish and it'd flap around and then he'd put his big paw on it and bite its head off. Yum. Then he'd crawl up to the top of the crow's nest and he'd sit mm. there sunning himself in the sun. But if he saw if he saw a bird, he'd meow at it like he wanted to eat it. But really what he's saying is land ahoy because birds are always close to the shore. Yeah, but birds aren't real, so maybe he was saying, Stop watching me, government! And at night time, after the captain had had his dinner, he'd come and sit on their lap, and Captain Barney would smoke a pipe, drink a glass of cognac, and he'd purr away and go to sleep. Oh, so you're the captain of the ship, are you? Captain Barney, that's right. (laughs) Robbie's southern charm and colourful personality saw her quickly become a popular member of staff. Her co-wankers, great. (laughs) Oh, co-wankers. Well, I mean, they work at the Central Screw Corporation for a reason. Clang. Oh, fuck, I didn't have a lid on my water. If I liked it, then I should have put a lid on it. That's right. Now my left arm's soaking wet and my right arm isn't, so I'm going to have to cover it too, just so I've got some... Just pour some water on the other arm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of doing it. Oh, good, (laughs) it's all on my pants as well. Awesome. Oh, glacial action. It's pretty cold. I'm getting the glacial oh, action oh, over really? here. Oh, yeah. Like a wet jumper competition. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm strictly that screw company right here. I'm completely screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terry got herself a secretarial job at a book printing company in Battleboro, Vermont, and settled into her new life. <laughs> You sounded like just like a random word-producing machine. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I like that. By the way, that's that's probably the best compliment anyone's ever given me, a random <laughs> word-making machine. <laughs> the curious employees at Central Screw took – I can't say it any other way now. I know. You totally can't. <laughs> Central Screw. Central Screw Corporation. How may I, how may I fuck your call? <laughs> now you want to do it in that voice? Oh, forgot. Also, I'm holding back a series of really like lame, silent burps. Really? <sighs> of course I am. <clears throat> in your bottom? No, in yours. In your mama's. Oh. Um, okay. You do give me gas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course I do. And you fucking love it. In the seventh grade, she received the earth-shattering honour of being voted the prettiest girl in school. I won that once. No, you didn't. You're right. I won it twice. <laughs> <laughs> so, sure, so, why not? So suck it. <laughs> I won it twice. Not once. Twice. Oh, you're just such a pretty girl. I am a pretty girl. You're a pretty girl. 
At Anniston High School, Marie continued to focus on her studies and joined the Future Teachers of America and the Commercial Club, a group for girls who aspire to achieve secretarial careers. You're in that, weren't you? Uh, no. Uh, well, I was. I was until I burnt down the building they held it in, oh, ran well, screaming and went, I want to work in a call centre for the rest of my fucking life. Woo! So they kicked you out? No. They, there was no building to kick me out of. I burnt it down. Uh, I got kicked out of the Sea Scouts on my first day. What did you do? Stole some cans of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> I had some little, little Barney had some shifty fingers helping himself to a five-finger discount can uh, of Coke. Hey? Uh, I just thought, oh, Coke, yum. Yum. And filled, filled my bag with them. And then oh, they caught me. <laughs> little scamp. Yeah, they said, oh, we don't think the Sea Scouts is for you, um, Young Bernaldo. Yeah, you're not honourable enough to be in the Sea Scouts. They pay for their coke. <laughs> That's right. That's actually the first rule of Sea Scouts. Yeah, buy your own coke. Buy your own coke, you shifty-fingered little fuck nugget. <laughs> That's exactly what they said to me. Yeah? Well, if only you'd stuck around and got your fuck nugget badge. <laughs> but you didn't, did you? I did not. I did not. And I regret that to this day. <laughs> Surely someone could make you one. He was from an Aniston family whose inhabitants worked in the area's other big industry, pipe making. Pipe making. Yes, Tara, pipe making. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really get that, so I thought I'd just say it like Bubs from League of Gentlemen. <laughs> it's just it's just strange. What kind of did they make the pipes that pipe you smoke making. or did they make the pipes that you smoke? No, no, like that fisherman pipes. smoke? No, I think it was more like, you know, actual pipes. That stuff go through, dude. Bagpipes? It was a bagpipe factory. Um, they made a lot of cotton bagpipes in that area because, as you know, cotton was the biggest industry. And, yeah, the second biggest industry, bagpipes. They actually, bagpipes originated in Alabama. That's where they're from originally. Well, and yeah. Jennifer Aniston's granddad invented them. Well, no, when they leave the warehouse doors open on a windy day, you can, you can hear the bagpipes going off. Oh, you can hear them all the miles. way in Vermont. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, the westerly blowing. Hear the sweet uh, bagpipes yeah. of Aniston calling to you. That's a song. It is. I, I think Glenn Campbell did it. It's just a, the sweet bagpipes of Aniston. It's a love song, if I remember correctly. And oh, quite, yeah. quite a perverted and uh, graphic one, too. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, up until about 1870, you could marry a bagpipe. <laughs> it was legal. You know what? I think it wouldn't be such a bad choice. Yeah. You could play um, some ACDC on it. That's true. Mm. And uh, Under the Milky Way tonight. Yeah, that, that was the first one I thought of. Yeah, yeah uh, You're the Voice by John Farnham. <laughs> oh, there you go. It just, the list just keeps getting better. I think it's an endless list. After Frank's tour of duty ended, they were thrilled to discover Marie was pregnant from their sex. <laughs> and not from something else. That Barney used to actually say that when his first son, Mo, was born. He would go around to all of us with the baby and go, oh, look what we made with our sex. And then they didn't want to touch the baby. No, of course we didn't want to touch the baby. Because we, we made it with our sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know when you said that, it made all of us have to picture you two having sex and we were like, ah. I want to read this paragraph because it looks like fun. 
As far as she was concerned, Carol could never do do anything right. Really wanted her daughter to be a sweet, pretty, doe-eyed girl. But Carol was a tomboy who loved sports and climbing <laughs> trees. Right, okay. I'm she found used... the pretty dresses her mother bought her in practical and would be chastised harshly <laughs> if she accidentally tore or stained one of them. It's not like you to get enthusiastic over someone else's lines. <laughs> <laughs> you know that makes the recording take longer, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. I don't, I don't fucking care. Where am I going? Fucking nowhere. We're grounded forever. Yeah, we are. I've got one question for this year. Why don't you go and get fucked? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I'm not normally a violent person, but oh, if I got my hands on this year. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, Marie started a saucy affair with her bob. With her bob. That's what, that's what I call bosses these days. I call them bobs. Oh, yeah, you got your co-wankers and you got your bob. Yeah, you're my bob and my co-wanker. <laughs> <laughs> Damn fucking straight I am uh, That's what I call Bruce Springsteen I call him the Bob <laughs> they, had, they had the intercom on in the room And they kept lying that it wasn't on And they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 